Have you ever ridden a horse? No, never ridden a horse, never. Have you? Yeah, a couple of times. It was a very popular birthday party activity when I was a small child. Really? We just went to McDonald's. Not on horseback. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of All The Way Through, the podcast journeying through the Lutheran back catalogue to work out whether we love them as much as we thought we did. My name is Matthew Dunn-Miles. As ever, I am joined gladly by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello, I am here under my own wishes and not against my will. Good. That's always good to know. Listeners should know that you're here willingly. Alex, what get-up do you have on today? I'm actually surprised you're able to see me because I am dressed in a full camouflage outfit. Not because I'm outdoors, but because it's a dominating way to dress. I've heard there's research on this. What are you wearing today? I have a jazzy shirt with elephants on it. With elephants on it? Was it elephants? Spoiler alert, Louis wears a hideous shirt. Are you sure it's not got farmers on it? Farmers, that was it. And did your girlfriend buy it for you? (laughs) It really is a terrible shirt. More on that later. (laughs) That will be a whole segment of this episode. But why? Why are farmers and camouflage important to this episode, Alex? Well, it's probably a trickier one to figure out than normal. The title of this Weird Weekends episode is quite simply Whites and it is set in post-apartheid South Africa and Louis Theroux goes to chat to the Boer community mainly. And people who are generally not willing to embrace this new South Africa where apartheid is over and kind of want to keep themselves to themselves, mainly in white-only communities. I think the opening scene of this really sets the tone. It's Louis angrily debating with an older white man. Usually this is his comfort zone, older men. He usually befriends them and makes them his kind of like dads, but not in this case. This is definitely the episode of Weird Weekends with the most pushback from the interviewees. The dads revolt against Louis. For context, this episode aired in October 2000, so it was probably filmed in... 99 and the abolition of apartheid was a long process but officially ended in 1994 so it's not that long since the new south africa was established tensions are high and people are scared i would say and it's quite apparent (laughs) i think that tensions are high absolutely absolutely So our first scene after we see a snippet of Louis arguing with someone who we will meet in full later is Louis in an unnamed South African town. And Louis on the voiceover says South Africa is a vibrant multiracial democracy, a modern reconciliation and opportunity on the continent of Africa. So clearly this is the vision. People are very engaged in this idea. This is being obviously steered by someone like Nelson Mandela, who really has that as his whole focus. We're looking at very much the other side of the coin here. Louis says that he's there to visit a subculture of separatists who are intensely opposed to the new regime. They want to build whites-only communities in certain parts of South Africa. So we jump into a jeep. It's Louis driving, but in a jeep this time, so it's fun. This is the advantage of being abroad, I think. This is only the second time that Louis's been out of the States so far, isn't it? Yeah, you could be right. And the other time was very recent as well. Yeah, stretching the budget, travelling the world, getting jeeps. So Louis is driving to Owendale, which is a town founded by a guy called Peter Dutoit. And he's going to show Louis his unusual security system that he has protecting the perimeter of the town. And the security is the animal kingdom. For some reason, I was imagining it would be like loads of automatic machine guns or like a minefield or something like that. Electric fence, a wall. It's some wildebeest. 
They seem to be the main thing. And also ostriches. Louis is confused and says, are they dangerous? And Peter says, one ostrich kick can kill you. He's not wrong. As anyone who's a fan of Johnny Cash will know, Johnny Cash was nearly killed by an ostrich once. Really? Yeah. In his autobiography, he talks about the fact that he had ostriches on his farm where he lived in America and one got quite threatening with him. So Johnny Cash, being the red-blooded American he is, tried to take it on and ended up having his whole stomach slashed. Oh my God. And had three of his ribs broken by an ostrich. He said it was an injury that he'd never properly recovered from. These are dangerous animals. Clearly, Louis had not read Cash by Johnny Cash (laughs) by this point, because he asks Peter, can I put that to the test? And Peter says, feel free. (laughs) You can try at your own risk. He's getting ready with the compliance form to say, I've not been responsible for this. And then for the next couple of minutes, Louis does a really sort of old school Weird Weekends Louis thing where he's winding Peter up and he gets off the truck, takes a step back and he goes, how much danger am I in right now? Not much. You're too close to the vehicle. What about now? This is classic Louis at Area 51, isn't it? I said that I've written, reminds me of Wimpo Tours. There's something about a Jeep that just sets Louis off. It puts him in a certain mindset where he's willing to challenge the rules. Yeah, he kind of fannies about in the desert for a little while. And Peter basically says, if you start running towards the wildebeest, they will turn on you. Louis seems to lose his bravado after that and doesn't attempt it. He does. And then we get back in the Jeep with Peter and then Louis is going through the vast South African countryside. It's very scenic. And Louis says, It's like a real life Jurassic Park, but without the dinosaurs. So it's like a grassy area. A park. It's literally a park. That's the key feature, Louis, is the dinosaurs. Louis clearly has a laugh with someone off camera about this. I think he knows that that was quite a silly thing to say. So Louis, after this, meets Peter's wife, who's called Minky. She's quite a lot younger than Peter. He's a bit of an older guy, middle-aged at least. Yeah, I'd say he's pushing 60. Minky seems pretty young, but she's very sure of her own beliefs. She is explaining to Louis more about Owendale, the community that her and Peter have started, and she explains that only white people can buy property and live there. And Louis sort of says, well, I saw a black person earlier, and she says, black people work for us, but they're not allowed to live here. Can we describe Minky's appearance? She's got kind of a perm haircut, I'd say. Looks a bit like a boar princess Diana. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. She looks quite of her time. She's quite late 90s. You can see her as playing one of Rachel's sisters in Friends or something. Good shout. Minky, very early on, is setting out her beliefs. She doesn't hide away how she feels. So she says, we as white people are not meant to be ruled by blacks. And Louis kind of sets out his stool too, because he's instantly challenging that idea. He says that the new South Africa post-apartheid is not about black rule. It's about a multiracial government. We see from this that Louis is not going to be afraid to speak his mind or give the opposite view in the face of these kind of opinions. And I think it's interesting because I think this is quite different to how Louis was in the Black Nationalists episode where you and I noticed a certain naivety about him and him not calling people out. And this time he's right in there and it's obvious that he's not happy. No, and I think this is the development of Louis. This is the evolution. He does get a bit more confident to put the other side of the story across, you know, fluent way and less keen to just go along with the flow. This episode is a really good example of that confidence in Louis growing. He is brave in this episode, I think. 
So cut to the classroom. There is like a classroom setting. There's a big blackboard and some chairs. It's quite eerie, isn't it? All of the shots of Owendale are like Silent Hill or something where there's nobody there. Yeah, and also we get to this later, but it's like this new build, but with very old furniture in places and stuff. It just all fits together very strangely. So Minky is in the classroom and this is obviously a lesson about where they stand in South Africa. Minky lays out, as I've read my notes, some nonsense about God's chosen people. She basically argues that she's racist because of religion, that God made no one equal and he chose white people to be superior. The cameraman is sat directly in the middle of the two of them and then just swings the camera from one side to the other as they talk back and forth. So the camera cuts to Louis and he says, So where does that leave non-whites? Goes back to Minky. Well, the way we see it, they've got no chance. And then Louis, in his classic hypothetical fashion, runs past a number of scenarios with Minky. What if you're one thirty-second black, one sixty-fourth black, very 23 and me. Minky, no, you're not white then, I'm afraid. I think actually she totally avoids properly talking about this topic. She just says, God doesn't want us to mix. And Louis says, you're talking about it as though we're a different species, white people and black people. And she says, could be, very possible. And she's kind of smirking as she says this. And it was this point I realised that I should be really shocked. I should be horrified by what this woman says. But the dialogue doesn't feel too different to what we've heard in mainstream views in the last few years. Or at least the kind of growing sentiment that you see bubbling away online that is spilling out into the real world. Doesn't feel that shocking. And then that's, that's scary. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's like we've not come that far. But I also think that it becomes obvious very quickly that she's aware of her own hypocrisy and she's almost trying to dampen down how blatantly racist she is. Yeah, she says it all with a smile and a smirk and it's all very possible. I can't possibly say I feel like the conversation is constantly this dog whistle sort of stuff. So then, in classic Louis fashion, he loves to have a little tour of facilities, especially homes. We go on a tour of Owendale with Minky walking around the site. She says there are 15 houses and families currently in Owendale. They go into a house. The camera is quick to point out that every labourer working on the house is black. People sanding walls, there are people painting. They are relying heavily on South African black labour, while Minky stands there and says, we will try and keep everything white. I think talking about the decor, I think this was meant to be a funny pun from Minky. (laughs) Yeah. She said the houses are usually three to four bedrooms. So they're quite large. It's obviously for fairly well-off people to live there. And then continuing that, she points out the badminton court, the library, the swimming pool. They go to the pool and Louis spots a black man working nearby and he says, would he be allowed to use the swimming pool? And Minky replies, no, he wouldn't because that would encourage social mixing, which we don't want to happen. You know what pools are like, heavy petting, cannonballing, it all goes on. But Minky's favourite spot in the entire town, she says, is the play park. And there's a very sort of classic roundabout there, brought back a lot of memories of being a small child and falling off roundabouts. This is kind of a weird moment. So Louis says, oh, have you ever been on this? Let's go on it. And they both go on the roundabout and they make the caravan get on it as well. I think that would make me puke. I'm quite bad with spinning stuff now. Oh, yeah. I think that would probably make me throw up. (laughs) But they're just having a very normal conversation while they're going round on this roundabout. And Minky says, oh, you can't touch this thing in the afternoon, meaning the roundabout. And she means because it gets hot in the sun. And Louis goes, because it's black. (laughs) 
And then she starts laughing and Louis says, oh, well, it's good that you have a sense of humour about your beliefs. And I just find it such a strange conversation. This is a bit like a scene straight out of some terrible teen romance as Timothy Chalamet pushes his lover around on a roundabout. Except she's a white supremacist. Can they bridge the gap? He's part of modern <laughs> South Africa. She's a white supremacist. But they fall in love. She's like Romeo and Juliet. This feels like the classic Louis interrogation. Do something incredibly normal or incredibly mundane. Something kind of fun and silly as well. It almost distracts you. And it makes people say stupid things. Disorientated people do say that. So then Louis asks her, do you mind if people think you're a racist? She says, not really, but I wouldn't introduce myself as one. So she doesn't care if people know her beliefs, but she's not going to instantly tell people about them, I suppose. Because she wants to protect herself, though. Of course, of course. There's a moment here where Louis says, do you think they're weird? And he means her beliefs. Minky misunderstands and says, sometimes they do weird things, but they don't seem weird to me. So she thinks that he's asking, do you think black people are weird? And again, she's trying to make herself seem like a nice racist by saying, well, I think they're fine. And Louis says, no, I mean, do you think your racist beliefs are weird? (laughs) Which she doesn't. And clearly for many people at this point in South Africa, because it had been institutionalized and brought in by the state, it probably wasn't weird. For some people, if this has been fed to you from top down, this is the way to view your society. Why would you not view it like that, I suppose? Yeah. And that's obvious because she asks Louis, do you think my beliefs are weird? And Louis says they're very unusual. But she's obviously surprised that he's surprised. And then we get into the more contradictory elements of Minky's beliefs that Minky loves music by the likes of Michael Jackson and states that she is a big Lionel Richie fan. And so Louis then uses this as a kind of way to connect Minky's love of Lionel Richie, the smoothest man in soul, to her wider beliefs and says, do you not think he'd be upset to see your beliefs? Minky says, I think he would be, but I hope you won't show him. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Louis going to go around and chap on his door. Well, who knows? He might be watching the BBC of one night on his tours. And then we're back in the teen romance where Louis begins to sing the lyrics of Hello to Minky. Is it me you're looking for? Is it somewhere in your smile? Can I see it in your smile? He does so much of it. And then he goes, I don't even think these are the words. <laughs> he also sings it in quite like a dulcet tone. It's very monotone. Ironically, in the background, I don't think they seem to have the rights to the original by Lionel Richie. Maybe they asked him, are we allowed to use this over a clip of a woman in an apartheid community in South Africa? And he said no. They use a kind of knockoff version. But it did get me thinking, the conversation about Minky and Lionel Richie, would he respect her beliefs? And judging by an interview that Lionel Richie did a few years ago with a journalist in Canada called George Strumpelolis. I've said that completely wrong. Sorry, George. He says that when Nelson Mandela was coming to America post-prison, so in the early 90s, Lionel was tasked with putting together his wardrobe for TV interviews. Ooh, that's weird. And the journalist says, how did you do? And Lionel says, man, I decked him out. My man was looking good. What a strange task for Lionel (laughs) Richie. I mean, obviously the man's got style, but... And also, the one thing that Minky and Nelson Mandela have in common, a shared love of Mr. Richie. Apparently, Nelson Mandela thanked Lionel Richie for his music, which helped him while he was in prison. So says Lionel. We can't ask Nelson about this. Finally, because I went down a rabbit hole with Lionel Richie. (laughs) 
<laughs> just as you were thinking, maybe he's quite an ethical guy. Apparently in 2006, Lionel Richie played a concert for Colonel Gaddafi in Libya to commemorate the 20th anniversary of American air raids on the country's capital. The man's a walking contradiction, but aren't we all? I don't know whether he styled Colonel Gaddafi. I'd have to ask him directly. Louis dug his claws into this music angle and he sticks with it. So they go to Peter and Minky's house, which is quite big and grand, lots of open space, and is very white in terms of decor. It looks like a house built very recently, but then the furniture is incredibly old and there is like dead animal skins on the floor and very traditional armchairs and stuff. The floor looked carpeted to me, like a white carpet, but then there were loads of plants in pots all over the floor just dotted about. And it just looked really strange. They weren't selling the Owendale dream to me, I'm afraid. Mm -mm. So Louis going through the record collection that they have there and he says in the voiceover that things deteriorated at this point. He holds up a Whitney Houston CD and he sort of says, Whitney Houston, black performer. When he's talking to Peter and Minky, he says that he personally thinks of music as a way to overcome differences and to bring people together, differences like race. And Peter is very dismissive of this. When Louis sort of saying, so you listen to Whitney Houston, you listen to The Temptations, he says, oh, I just listen to classical stuff now. I don't listen to that stuff anymore. Louis tries to highlight the contradiction to him. You're listening to music made by black people or you at least used to listen to this music, but you wouldn't let them into your home. And Peter gets really angry and he says, oh, you're trying to make it a political thing now, which... Stop politicising Whitney Houston, Louis. And then he does something which I don't think has happened yet in the history of Weird Weekends that I can remember so far in our rewatch. He doesn't shout, he doesn't get like super angry, but he just goes... We can't carry on, you can switch it off, I'm not talking anymore on this. And Louis, instead of kind of saying, no, no, let's continue, the scene ends with Louis just letting out a... as if he's slightly defeated by the whole thing. Yeah, it's a very, very weird way for the interview to end and clearly shows that Louis was testing the boundaries, was asking them serious questions and Peter clearly didn't enjoy that. But I do think it's good to show that. Louis can't always sweet talk his way out of everything. But we don't get to see how the teen romance ended. What a shame. They'll always have the roundabout. I was keen to know whether Owendale was still going and it's one of these things where it's hard to tell. On the Wikipedia entry about Owendale, it says that members of the congregation wished to live in an isolated village, but the dearth of available jobs led to the disintegration of the community. There is no end date to Owendale, so I assume that maybe some people are still there, perhaps Peter and Minky are still there, but clearly this was an unsustainable project in terms of building this into a grander thing. Peter's like a thousand years old now, surely. Peter is, yeah, Methuselah. He's the oldest man in (laughs) South Africa. But this idea of the whites-only towns doesn't go away. There's a Guardian article by a journalist called Dennis Webster from 2019, which is called An Indictment on South Africa, Whites-Only Town Orania is Booming. One of the lines in the article says, after three decades as a quiet backwater, Orania is booming. Its population, currently around 1,700, has doubled over the last seven years. So these communities still exist, which is interesting. It is interesting because I feel like you see the holes in this concept so quickly, even in this short bit of this episode. Oh, completely. Yeah, <laughs> they show around the houses and all their workforce is black. How can you keep a white-only community where you're relying on other cultures and other races to help you out? It's ridiculous. Louis, tail between his legs, moves on to his next lead, which is a group 
who are claiming land because they are an endangered minority people known as the Boers, which, of course, there was the Boer War. You will definitely have heard of them. So Louis meets Get Yourself, a guy who does both Boer State Party leader and swimming pool repairman, Dirk von Tonder. He's got a quite red complexion, scraggly beard. Looks like... A Scottish man, to be honest. But also looks like an IT technician, I would say. Or like he could work at Games Workshop. Yeah, he doesn't look like a swimming pool repairman. But I do love a double life. I love when in Weird Weekends people have crazy things going on, but they're also a swimming pool repairman or a mechanic or a sock pairer. So Louis' conversation starts with Dirk, very high level. So it's about what does the Boer State Party stand for? And Dirk replies, the reinstatement of the Boer State period. He wants this to be a separate country for the Boer people as the land stood in 1899. So Louis, in a way to kind of engage with Dirk, goes for one of the oldest tricks in the book, a personal favourite. He gets out the map. We get a lot of maps in this episode. We do. My geography is quite bad, so I kind of had a closer look. And basically the Boer States seems to have once been the entire top half of South Africa, which Louis says is quite a big chunk. Dirk talks about how this was land that the English took. And this becomes a theme that we touch on, but maybe not as much as we should. The hostility of the Boer community to the English. Louis addresses this in his conversation with Dirk, who has obviously made a few slidings, and says, No, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, yeah, sure. but I'm picking up a teeny bit of hostility towards the English. Dirk laughs and says, There's no great love from Boer people for the English. Join the queue, lads. Pretty awkward conversation. It is, but I feel like it's touched upon but never got into why, and I think that could have been a potentially interesting subject to work out why there is this hostility. Definitely. British people, not just English people, are guilty of never really looking too hard at why they are disliked in certain places. After this map drawing session, Louis back in his truck with Dirk and they're surveying the land that Dirk wants ownership of. Louis asks the question, are the Boers a majority in this particular area at the moment? Dirk says, no, not at the moment. And then kind of makes a comparison with the situation of the Boers and the communities in Israel and how that whole situation was worked out. But nothing very clear. It doesn't seem like there's an obvious plan here. It seems like Dirk is optimistic but he doesn't really seem to have the answers that he's willing to give anyway. But clearly Louis and Dirk have hit it off because Louis gets the coveted invite to the Boer State Party Festival. Sounds pretty good. Sounds like a big deal. And Louis is maybe a little bit nervous about how he's going to be received because he's just been told that the Boers hate English people. So he suggests that he gives a speech in Afrikaans to smooth the way. Dirk likes that idea and he helps him write it. So they have a nice little moment where they sit and Dirk, I assume phonetically, writes out what Louis is going to say in Afrikaans. Much respect for Louis for suggesting this. I like that he's willing to address people in their native tongue. Yeah, it's a smart move. But it's also nice. I like when people do that. So Louis asks, what's the deal with this festival? Is there anyone big on the guest list who's going to be speaking? And Dirk says that Mr. Terre Blanche will be attending. What a name. And in fact, he's only ever referred to as Mr. throughout. His actual first name is Eugene, if you wanted to know. Eugene Terrablanche, the leader of AWB, which a quick Google tells you is the nationalist, neo-Nazi and white supremacist political party in South Africa. Of course, Terrablanche translating from French as white world. Wow, really? That's good. I didn't do that translation. 
Mr. White World. Yeah. That's a big lol from me in my notes. <laughs> but that's not the best poetry about Eugene Terra Blanche that we get. Dirk, when talking about this man, the leader of the AWB, says to Louis, If you look into his blowtorch blue eyes, you can see in him the spirit of the Boer. Speaking of teen romance, <laughs> Dirk is big into Mr. Terra Blanche. He's got his posters on the wall. He's listening to all his CDs. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this guy's a big Nazi, but it doesn't ever actually get said aloud unless you sort of dig slightly deeper or think of the meaning. Even his blowtorch blue eyes, it's all sort of like pretty unsettling. But there's no time to dwell on that, Alex, because we are being taken to the Boer State Party Festival. Things are looking pretty hot, pretty active. There's a kind of Ibiza vibe going on, a little bit of the Rio Carnival, or there is a brass band warming up beside a small bus. Personally, when I go to Ibiza, I always wear a period costume with a bonnet. So that's one of the things. People have dressed up specially for the occasion. They're in traditional boar costume. There is one man who is in the most extravagant floral waistcoat and pink cravat number I've ever seen. I don't know whether Prince was part of the boar community, but that's the only outfit I've seen similar. You just know Louis was coveting that horrible (laughs) printed waistcoat. So they explained that they are going to do some folk dancing later on. But this is where you start to see the seams kind of fall apart of this Boer festival. They explained that the folk dancing was never actually part of the Boer history. What they are doing is just copying some imagined idea of what European people would do. So Louis says, so it's a manufactured tradition. And the floral man says... Yes. And Dirk quickly wants to interject and say, it's not particularly traditional, but kind of, it's okay. But they all look silly. (laughs) (laughs) If you were going to manufacture a tradition for your culture, wouldn't you at least try and look slightly cooler? I think the man with the floral waistcoat has got the right idea. If you're going to make stuff up about the boars, make them out that they were all like these dandies who wore these incredible silk outfits. If no one's checking, why not? Exactly. So Dirk is busy getting ready for the festivities and Louis decides to circulate, network and meet a few people. And this also doesn't go that well, I think, for what he wants. He meets an old man who we later find out is called Herr Beisner. And they have a conversation during which it quickly transpires that Herr Beisner was a member of the Luftwaffe for many years, which is, of course, the Nazi German Air Force. To which Louis replies with a, hmm because he doesn't know what to say. How would you indeed reply to that? And then the guy picks up Louis' disapproving vibe, or at least uncertain vibe, and then kind of just goes all in and says, hey, I don't care what you say. Other people can say what they want. The nationalist socialist reign was the best time in Germany. If you don't like it, I don't care. He's probably the first person in the episode that's really laid his cards out on the table. Yeah, but that's because he's an actual physical Nazi. Not even like a neo-Nazi. He's the original source. I've written that Louis looks very perturbed. He does. And clearly this conversation isn't going too well. He's talking to Nazi granddad and another guy and they are saying that they believe a Boer state is the only solution and then Nazi granddad gets angry. He's probably not had his milk and his biscuits. So he walks away frustrated. Louis is worried he's offended Nazi granddad and talks to, is it Fred? Mm-hmm. He talks to Fred about whether he was kind of annoyed and he says, ah, don't worry, he's old school. He probably doesn't like the British. Yeah, which is a fair judgment. I think we all just assume that when we meet people from different places, don't we? Again, join the queue. 
So Louis obviously has been perturbed by this conversation and goes to find Dirk and Dirk's got some bad news. Some sad news, as Dirk puts it. Mr. Terran Blanche has taken his blowtorch blue eyes elsewhere. He will not be appearing at the festival. Dirk's pretty caught up about it. Dirk is clearly disappointed. He's trying to hide it, but that was his big figure that was making this serious. And then Louis kind of tries to make Dirk feel better by saying, well, it's okay, man, because you said there was going to be 300 to 400 people here. And there's like no one here. So this whole interaction and a bit that comes later is so foreshadowing of conversations that we have seen in recent history. Dirk gets quite defensive about this. Says, yeah, people might be arriving later. You can't judge it. It was the biggest crowd in history. The biggest ever crowd. And Louis says, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Still early. Then it's time for the speakers to get up. We're in what looks like almost a mini centre parks set up. <laughs> Definitely. There's a stage and some chairs set out. The brass band, who we saw warming up earlier, are playing. And due to Mr. Terran Blanche dropping out, <laughs> the main speaking gig has gone to Nazi Grandad. And I've just wrote in my notes, oh, fuck. <laughs> So the BBC iPlayer said that he makes a speech in Afrikaans, but then Louis later says, oh, I think he was speaking in German. Delivery was uh, quite Nazi-influenced, and we don't get subtitles, so they didn't go back and translate what he said. And that's probably a choice, to be fair, because Louis doesn't understand what he's saying either. And this is one of my favourite Louis voiceover moments ever, where he says, For the first time in my life, I was second billing to a Nazi. I wonder if it was the last time in his life. Definitely not. I mean, this becomes a theme of later Louis episodes completely, doesn't it? So he does his little speech in Afrikaans. And he does quite well, I think. He's obviously practised it. He says it well. Dirk says that it's gone down well and people liked it and they've accepted him. Probably not Nazi granddad, though. No, <laughs> but it's an easy act to follow, isn't it? So then Louis is chatting to Dirk afterwards and Louis asks about what Nazi Grandad was saying. He didn't understand it. And Dirk says, he's more with the AWB and not with us. We are more of a cultural movement. And this is Dirk trying to distance himself, but also openly giving this guy a platform. Yeah, because Louis says, I literally couldn't understand him. What did he say? And Dirk says, oh, he made a comment about how everything in South Africa came from the white man. We don't think that. It's slightly different to Minky, but it's a similar thing where he's sort of saying, oh yeah, well, we're kind of bad, but not as bad as that. And he's trying to make himself more likable and distance himself, but like you say, not distancing himself really. And Louis says, person to person, I don't think that you should give someone like that a platform. Which is a conversation that could be happening in the modern day. Dirk's views are trying to be nuanced and a little bit this and a little bit that. But if you are sharing the platform with someone who openly says something way more extreme, that's going to be the thing that people remember. And if they believe those ideas, is going to rally people around it. And it's also the kind of view where you should be horrified by that. And if you're not, if you can just sort of be like, well, you know, I don't really agree with it, but let him say his bit, then you are essentially agreeing with it. Absolutely. And Louis asks about uh, giving this man a platform as a way of not alienating his constituency, because in order to keep this folk dancing movement going, he needs this constituency to keep the numbers up. So basically they need the racists. Exactly. The Nazi racists, sorry, just to differentiate. But never mind that. There's folk dancing to happen. It's so awful the singing and the dancing is so bad yeah cut to boar folk dancing which isn't really a thing and louis voiceover explains that he feels slightly sorry for dirk in this situation as the rain begins to pour down and louis leaves the state party festival louis face during the dancing is perfect 
But do we agree with Louis? Do we feel sorry for Dirk? Not really. I don't think so. I thought that was a bit of a strange thing for Louis to say, actually. Yeah, they clearly have a cordial relationship, and maybe Louis confuses that with thinking that Dirk is a reasonable guy in this situation. I was intrigued to see where Dirk ends up and what happens to the Boer State Party. And the swimming pools. Well, Dirk moves his way out of the swimming pool industry and gets himself into the craft beer industry. No. Yes. An article from a Voice of American News, which is a government-funded overseas newswire in America. It's titled, New South African Beers Flavoured with Boer History, by a writer called Darren Taylor. And he's talking about how he goes to the Irish Ale House, which is a few stone buildings on a dusty rocky farm in South Africa's northwest province. It says it's more than just a brewery. And this is where we get back into the anti-English heritage of the Boer movement. It's a monument to the Irish Brigade, a group of Irishmen who fought with the country's Boers against the English in 1899 to 1902 during the Boer War. So Dirk has seen himself a commercial opportunity to open an Irish pub in South Africa. Dirk is brewing this artisanal beer, Dirk is mentioned, in a book called African Brew, and the author refers to him as a maverick brewer, a guy who could not only throw out the rule book, but never deign to buy a rule book in the first place. He just brews it in the swimming pools. <laughs> but does he give up the Boer State Party? or The Boer State Party, again, much like Owendale, there is no definite end, but what we can see is that there was no real kickstart anyway. The Wikipedia page of the Boer State Party, the Boer Stat Party as it's known in Afrikaans, says it was never officially registered as a political party because it was unable to rally 500 persons under one roof, a requirement under South African electoral law. I bet that really annoyed Dirk. Yeah. Louis moves on to his next point, which is a training camp for Boers, led by a former nurse, Fritz Meyer. Can we first describe Fritz's appearance? He's pretty hunky, isn't he? He's a big old boy. He's about the same height as Louis, well built, wearing an incredibly patterned shirt that surely Louis is absolutely seething over. And they do a firm handshake. This is a big theme, apparently, in the Boer community is very firm handshakes. The recruits are getting ready to graduate in their bucket hats. They all kind of look like somewhere between scouts and an Oasis concert. They're all quite dweeby in their little khaki uniforms. I've wrote, it's like a racist Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> it totally is. And Louis takes the piss, really, which we probably wouldn't do with Fritz there because he would crack our necks immediately. But then he'd be able to fix you instantly afterwards because of his nursing abilities. Louis says, do they know the war is over? Meaning the Boer War. And Fritz says, Louis should ask the Queen to apologise. And Louis says that he'll give her a call that night. And then looks down the barrel of the camera like a Tim or Jim from The Office for predating both, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. He is a trailblazer for British TV, is our Louis. So Fritz kind of lays out what he believes and he's saying that the Boers are struggling to get work due to discrimination, as he puts it, in this new South Africa. And he says that giving them the skills of farming and security is a way to keep them working, which is how he kind of justifies these boot camps that he's put together where they get this military training. And so he throws Louis in at the deep end. They begin a role-playing situation where Louis has to shoot three burglars with a shotgun. Louis loves shooting a gun, doesn't he? <laughs> he does, but he clearly struggles struggles in this situation fritz is barking orders at him telling him okay you've got to reload and louis's gun doesn't reload and he says oh poo fritz says louis's aim is superb which maybe a lot of people would be surprised that little old louis threw is a gunslinger but fritz says you won't survive in africa they come too fast one of my favorite lines of the episode so then louis asks 
who the enemy are, who are we training against? Fritz says it's the people killing the commercial farmers once a week, which is one of these big overriding ideas that white farmers are being hunted down and killed in South Africa, which I tried to look if there was any supporting evidence for. There's an article from the BBC written in 2017 called South Africa, the groups playing on the fears of a white genocide. And one of the lines in it says between April 2016 and March 2017, 74 people of all races were murdered on farms in South Africa, according to police figures, compared to more than 19,000 murders nationwide in the same period. So clearly this is not the epidemic, the crime spree that people are suggesting it might be. It also says the BBC has found that there is no relatable data to suggest farmers are at greater risk of being murdered than the average South African. It is interesting because it gets brought up by so many different people in this episode. Fritz says the Boer people need to know how to defend themselves because of this sort of crime spree. He's going to train Louis up and he takes Louis on a horse, puts him on a horse for the first time so he can go horse riding. And they give him a cute little velvet riding helmet with the peak. Everyone else is wearing cowboy hats or no hats at all and Louis's got that little helmet on. So cute. He looks incredibly nervous to be sitting on this horse at first. He does. And they go off for a ride together. I think Fritz says that he wants to go and have a look at the nice countryside and show it to Louis. And while they're riding along, Louis asks Fritz about Mr. Terreblanche. And Fritz is sort of reluctant at first to say anything. He says, oh, you know, Boers shouldn't talk badly about each other. We're all a family. But then he says that he thinks Terreblanche has done the cause a lot of harm. And his approach isn't necessarily what everyone should be going for. And then Fritz... Interestingly, he says, I wish the poor people had a leader like Nelson Mandela. Fritz is clearly not as in love with Mr. Terran Blanche as Dirk is, but we don't really touch on why. That's hinted at, but it never really explained. But Louis is on his horse and managing that pretty well, I have to say. Very proud of him. So it's Louis' day to train as a bull. We're going back to the weird weekends. Philosophy, get involved, join in. So Louis is up at 5am training with the cadets on their last day before graduation. I've wrote, Louis has a face like a smacked ass. He is not a morning person. So he is running through the tasks that many of the cadets do. He is milking a cow. They are running. They're doing sit-ups. This is his Joe Wicks fantasy. He is a big fan of Joe Wicks these days. He loves this now. He eats some absolutely horrible looking porridge, I think. Just like white slop in a bowl, dressed in full army fatigues. And then he's polishing his boots while wearing them, which feels a little bit pointless. Saying with another young recruit, and they're talking about after they graduate, what happens. And this guy, who, I don't know how young he is, but like 17. I said he looks no older than 20. I can't see him being any older than that. He's very young. I felt like this happened a lot in this episode where everybody danced around the real motivation behind it and then someone comes out and says it eventually and this was that moment where he says now he'll go and work on a farm to get the blacks off the farms so there can be more whites in our country and less blacks he's clearly not as savvy with the political messaging as others in this movement he talks about taking south africa back from black people that's kind of just lays it bare what the real message is. Yeah, exactly. It takes all the nuance out of Turk and Fritz's comments. This is how it's translating to the people. They took it from us and we have to take it back. The graduation ceremony goes ahead outside. Looks like quite a nice day in comparison to the rain at Dirk's rally. Louis decided to sit in the audience and watch as the recruits graduate or passing out, isn't it? That's what they call it. Yeah. 
He says in the voiceover that he's beginning to think protecting white farmers means evicting black tenants. It's an interesting move as well. Clearly he's been playing cadet for the day, but then when it comes to the celebration of this and the kind of moment where he has to stand in front of others, maybe he gets a twinge of, this doesn't feel quite right to me, and so goes back to being the observer. It's nearly time for him to leave the boot camp, but Fritz wants to show him one more thing before he goes, and this is a former concentration campsite run by the British Army during the Boer War. Again, no other information is given. We're just told this is a concentration camp run by the British. And it would be interesting, I think, at that point to have some information that puts those grievances into context. I would love to know more about that and why this is such an important thing for the Boer history and their culture and why he feels the need to show this to Louis. But we don't get that. We get lost in another conversation about cultural differences. Fritz says he still feels like the war against the Boers is going on at the moment and that's sort of why he still feels resentment towards British people and for that reason he says he wouldn't like to see Louis marry his daughter because their cultures are too different and then Louis asks how would you have received me if I was black and Fritz says it wouldn't have worked he wouldn't have done the documentary and then he just sort of jumps into a bit of a rant after that very defensive and talks about how Afrikaners are being discriminated against because they are white in the new South Africa And this is one of the most bizarre bits in the whole documentary. Suddenly, Louis takes a back seat because the words of Fritz in this moment have really annoyed the cameraman who's working on the film, who is clearly himself a member of the Boer community. I think Louis says that in the voiceover. And he jumps in to kind of speak against Fritz. And the cameraman says, don't act like a fascist. And Fritz says, I'm not a fascist, I'm a loving father. The conversation ends with Fritz calling the South African man a traitor for joining the new democratic South Africa. Would have been great to see a little bit more of that play out, I think. That's the thing. You don't dig into that tension. Like, obviously there's tension between black people and white people, but arguably it would be great to know more about the tension between the Boers, the ones that have accepted multicultural South Africa and the ones that aren't. It is very jarring. That's such a quick bit. And then it's just over. They think it's all over, but we actually managed to track down that angry cameraman two decades on. His name is Devault Okuma, and he's been nominated for Emmys, BAFTAs and Oscars. He is also, it turns out, still good friends with Louis Theroux. I spoke to Devault about activist filmmaking, the current political climate in South Africa, and, of course, his brief cameo in the episode. My name is Devault Okuma. I'm South African, born in South Africa, grew up there, went to film school there, and ultimately ended up as a cinematographer, which is essentially what I've been doing for the last ooh, close to 40 years. At film school, I met Angus Gibson, who's a lifelong friend. We started a little film production company whilst we were at film school, 1981-82. We ended up making little films for the local broadcaster, the SABC. But at that point, we'd already, both of us had become quite politicized and we ended up forming a non-profit cooperative called Free Filmmakers with like-minded people who were anti-apartheid, essentially. As we were doing that, I embarked on shooting films for international broadcasters against the system then. I suppose I got a bit of a name as the go-to person there at that point. There weren't many Afrikaners, because I'm an Afrikaner. My mother is very much a Boer. As a result, I got many, many requests to shoot many films all over the country, quite often undercover, quite often with other directors being there, me just going off with the camera and gathering what they wanted, speaking to them at remote phone boxes and things. I ended up shooting a lot of the stuff on film at that point. There was no digital or video. And then I would 
smuggle the brushes out of the country via Botswana or Swaziland, one of those places, connect with people or leave something, <laughs> a bag of exposed negative hanging in trees somewhere in the middle of the bush. I thought about it today, but more than probably about 65, 70 films like that during that 10-year period, between 82 and 92, really. Elections came in 94, and then Nelson Mandela's inauguration was in 95. Just after Mandela was released, I was asked to accompany him to North West Africa, really, to Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal, places like that. He was there in those countries just before he was arrested in the 60s. And so he went back there, and I went with him, and I shot a whole film around that whole extraordinary event, which was, my God, millions of people in the streets. And it was an extraordinary experience, and it was good to get to know him. After that, I was asked to do shoot a big film on his life, which ended up being nominated for an Oscar. That was sort of the last page of that part of my life of being an activist filmmaker. And then I got a call in 1999 from a producer in London saying that they'd like me to shoot a film with this guy called Louis Theroux. And it's a very different kind of filmmaking than I was used to. I sort of got to understand what he was about and how everything is covered in quite a haphazard way and quite a sort of rough way. It's not really hard work. You don't really have to consider what the light's doing, why it's doing it, and how you have to manipulate that to make it work. It's just whatever is there is what you work with. Quite a few of the people we pursued knew me from the 80s. Because in the 80s, I was often pulled in by the police and chucked into jail for a bit of time to see if they could get me to talk about things. But they could never could really get their heads around was the fact that I was an Afrikaner and I was making films against them. I'd met Darrell Blanche before. I'd met Eddie Van Maltitz before. The guy that I sort of started having an argument with. I didn't know him. I'd never come across him. He started talking complete nonsense and I just, I suppose, inappropriately, in hindsight, intervened and told him that he, was, um, <laughs> he didn't have it right. The nature of Weird Weekends is quite tongue-in-cheek. How um, did you feel about that, with that particular subject uh, matter? Yeah, it wasn't serious. It was all a bit funny. Portraying the Afrikaner in a way that was quite simplistic, I thought, at the time, because obviously this is a complex thing. Any struggle is complex. Any culture is complex. And the reasons for its importance and for its faults and its ambitions, all those things are relevant. These films weren't. They were just basically trying to find the extreme characters, which they did. Eddie van Maltes, I remember going to his farm and he showed off his cattle that he was genetically modifying. They had adders the size of this table. Completely weird. He's a real character. He was quite bright, actually. You could see he had a great relationship with everyone he worked with. He was getting on in his own way as a white South African. And then Tara Blanche. I think the interesting thing with Tara Blanche was that obviously he was the prize that they were after because he wasn't stupid and he was arrogant and he was bombastic and a, and a proper fascist in many ways, I suppose. It's not a word to use lightly, but he had some very, very dark ambitions. If you could say what you thought would be the best outcome for South Africa, how would you like to see the country progress from here? What do you think could or should happen? What could happen is a complete disaster. Zuma and his cronies at the moment, Ace Magashula, Malema, all of them are basically criminal. They've got cases against them and they could end up in jail for a very long time. And that's obviously the last thing they want to do. And they're very powerful. All three of them are populists. And Cyril's job is to get rid of those people. And they're fighting back. Worst case scenario, we could end up in a civil war and the military taking over and it being a complete mayhem. I doubt that. I really do. Because I think South Africa has just got too much going for it. It's just such an extraordinary place. It's got amazing people in it. And I think the majority of people will just absolutely oppose it if that happens. My dream scenario would be Cyril is victorious and takes them on. The constitution is a very robust. It's the most sophisticated in the world. It's the newest one in the world, right? It's robust and it's held up so far. So all those things are in place. And I have real hope that we end up with a proper democratic society. Louis is driving again. He says he feels discouraged. <laughs> 
Jesus. His next contact is a former follower of Mr. Terra Blanche, who has had a change of heart. And he's a guy called Eddie Van Maltitz, who's now participating in New South Africa. In his own specific way. Eddie Van Maltitz is one of the most conflicting characters I think I've ever seen in a Louis documentary. They meet weirdly at the side of a road. Eddie comes over and gets confused by his own name, calls himself Louis. Which Louis points out and it's just... <laughs> yeah, incredibly <laughs> awkward. But the idea is that they're going to a cookout, a communal barbecue session, which is, I think, a big thing in South African culture. And he says, I'm usually the only white man there. So we go to this barbecue and there are many black South Africans there. And Eddie starts speaking a different language, not Afrikaans, which we've heard quite a lot of. He is speaking in Sasuti, he describes it as, which is the dialect of black South Africans and which he has learned. And he says many Boers have not bothered to learn this language. So this kind of sets an idea that Eddie is willing to ingratiate himself or become a part of this community. He's there with his family, he's there with his daughters and his son. They're all in khaki clothing and Eddie explains this because the farm is at war. He's presenting himself initially as this very friendly community guy but then he's there in full camouflage gear. It looks pretty weird like nobody else is dressed like that apart from him and his family. So already I was just a bit like what is the deal with this guy? And then very quickly the deal becomes apparent where he's talking and walking with Louis and he says They know me, I'm a racist. I believe you mustn't minx black and white kids in the same school. Sorry Louis, we're going to really? talk straight. Yes, really? they firmly believe it. Louis's quite taken aback by this admission which I think we all probably are as viewers and Louis says well why are you spending time and making peace with black people if you're racist and Eddie says because he's a racist as well the black man is a worse racist than I am and he sort of explains that boers are polecats because of their want to be separate but he names lots of other places for example British people who went to Australia killed so many more aboriginals than the boers have killed black people in South Africa he claims and he basically says oh the British have done much worse lots of other people have done much worse Louis in this moment seems to be actively moving away from Eddie he doesn't really want to engage in this conversation at one point Eddie physically grabs at him and says wait 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 as if to say come on you have to listen to this we need to have this conversation and Eddie talks so loudly and there's lots of people lots of black people standing around listening to this and he's clearly not worried about being heard and it's clear Eddie's views are very complex they're so difficult to put into a box his kind of overriding mantra is he's staying in South Africa and the reason that the ball people who've stayed stayed there was to improve the level of society they want to be part of this new thing and they feel that they can offer something proactive constructive to that new South Africa he says he's not leaving and leaving nothing like the British did pulling out and letting things go bad after that so then we move from this this conversation to he's back to speaking Susutu with staff at a restaurant yeah they go to eat and he's matey with everyone joking with everyone he tells them they need to give Louis the tastiest food and they discuss things a little bit more and Eddie says he's happy to live in a multicultural society but he must be guaranteed his culture his language and his prosperity which is not unreasonable demands I don't think that's a fair thing to say of anyone in a multiracial society you have the right to hold on to your culture you don't have to lose that completely he also goes on to say that he wants to be Lawrence of Africa 
yeah, slightly conflicting image there. At this point, this is the first time Louis has a conversation with a named black South African. This is 27 minutes into the documentary. I repeat, 27 minutes in. He speaks to Amos, who is a taxi driver from South Africa. There is no real further comment on that, but he does speak to someone who is a black South African. Is that the only conversation? That is a named person on camera? Yeah, I think so. Good stuff. Louis goes back to Eddie's farm with him and his family and he says in the voiceover that he likes Eddie and he's unlike any other racist he's met, which is such a compliment. And they stop on the way and there's a pothole in the road and this pothole prompts like a big massive, quite philosophical conversation where Eddie says that he'll fix that pothole because it looks bad on him if that pothole isn't fixed. He claims that a pothole in the road is a symbol of a banana republic. Which he's clearly terrified of. This is what he's scared of. Although he's saying that he wants to be part of the culture, it's clear that he thinks that he's going to save everyone. So he does think of himself as more important than other people in that culture, I think. And leading the way as well, being the gubernatorial figure. I will fix the potholes. This is my responsibility. Putting himself in a position of power. They have a little bit more chat about the Boer culture and we learn that Boer means farmer which is something i didn't know again would have been nice to probably have given some context about the boars earlier in the documentary and we meet eddie's giant son giant son and it's time for louis to do some labor some hard labor on seeing eddie's giant son who's tall and slim by the way not the hulk of a man like fritz Louis immediately says oh you're wearing those afrikaner shorts like i've seen on the telly i mean the camera kind of pulls back to reveal the shorts which can only be described as black hot pants with a belt as well which i can just kind of accentuate so they're like these high-waisted i mean i think i actually have a pair of shorts exactly like this myself they're above the belly button yeah high-waisted short shorts with a brown belt for doing farm work in. Louis says, why would you wear shorts like that? And Eddie says, I wear shorts like this. Horrifying, glad we didn't see that. And he says, it's better for when you kick. I'm sure that's how they sell them on the telly. So Louis is finally given in to doing some work and he is lifting a heavy bag into the shed. And Eddie is clearly impressed with Louis's effort. And he says, I like you, Louis. Don't break your neck, Louis. <laughs> God. Some classic grunting from Louis as well, like really showing that he's putting some hard work in. He hams it up. And then we get a bit more of Eddie's house. And again, like his clothing, it's this mock military style. There's like camouflage netting on the roof. There's sandbags in the porch. At one point, he reveals from behind the sandbags a giant shield that he would use to protect his house. And then we go to him training his daughter, Marty, who is 14. And she's using some nunchucks. She's really good. Marty is a killing machine. Super scary. Louis says, well, Marty's really good. I'm not going to be any use on the patrol. And Eddie says, you'll be good cannon fodder. So Louis gets to have a go with all the gear. He has the go with the nunchucks, hits himself repeatedly while he's doing it. Then they play around with big sticks, like it's the behind the scenes bits of Star Wars. The conversation moves again to our blowtorch blue-eyed saviour, Mr. Terran Blanche. Eddie had resigned from his party 10 years ago, but he does say that Mr. Terran Blanche woke up his patriotism. He says, I was just an ordinary guy, making money, not worrying about anything else. You could say he's been radicalised by this movement. It's pushed him into a completely different lifestyle. He was radicalised, but rejected the guy who radicalised him because he wasn't disciplined enough. Eddie says they were smoking, drinking and beating people up. But the history of the AWB is far more sinister than that. There was a point in 1991, so just after apartheid was kind of going through and had been negotiated, the AWB were confronted by police in front of a town hall 
where the state president was speaking and a number of people were killed or injured in the conflict. Then there is a point later in the history where the police are guarding a trade centre and the evaders then took over the main conference hall, threatening delegates and painting slogans on the walls, but left again within a short period. Six OVWB members were sentenced to death for the murder of four black people at a fake roadblock they set up to terrorise black travellers. So we're not talking about some rough and tumble. This is a really, really deadly kind of movement. I don't think that's ever really conveyed in the episode. Yeah, Eddie kind of makes them sound like frat boys. But they go out in the car on the safety tour of the farm. Louis and Eddie sit in the cab and then Marty and another of Eddie's daughters stand in the open pickup truck bit of the car with guns. And Louis asks, is this about protecting white people? And Eddie says, no, with no hesitation, he says it's about protecting black people too. They are family. Eddie's views are so weirdly conflicting. It's hard to know where he stands. And also maybe hard to know what's true and what's not. Luckily for Louis, the farms are quiet and there's no need to put his Kevlar vest to the test. I had a search around for Eddie. Eddie's still going. He's still active on Facebook. He posts a lot of statuses on Facebook up to the present day. Worryingly, possibly he is now an anti-vaxxer. I did see him posting some dubious YouTube videos. It's hard to read because he writes a lot in Afrikaans. He posts a lot of stuff from his photo collection and has an image of Mr. Terran Blanche at one point and says something about him. So he's clearly very engaged still in this whole movement. Well, speaking of big Eugene Terran Blanche... Louis off to meet him, driving in a car wearing a long-sleeved Hawaiian-esque shirt and shorts. What a look that must have been. And he says in the voiceover that, I'm going to call him Eugene because it makes him sound less scary. Eugene is known for his fiery temper and Louis a little bit nervous about it. But first, instead of going straight to Eugene's house, he picks up Dirk in his car. Jump in, loser. We're going to meet the father of apartheid. We're going neo-Naziing. Dirk starts talking about how he is a CD of poetry via Big Eugene, which is all in Afrikaans. And Dirk jokes, oh, how is your Afrikaans now? And Louis says, oh, I'm fluent, but unfortunately for the viewers, I have to speak English. And Dirk loves this. Clearly loves this joke. We see a glimpse of the CD with the photo on the back of Big Eugene. Looks a bit like Kenny Rogers. White beard, white hair. (laughs) They listen to it and um, God, I bet that guy's done some intolerable open mic performances at some point. And there's also extended musical intros. Louis says, oh, it sounds a little bit like Hotel California. Dirk is very excited that Louis knows about the Eagles because he likes the Eagles. But then Dirk says, I never really understood the lyrics of that song. Can you explain what they mean? And fortunately for Louis, before he has to explain the Eagles' back catalogue, they are interrupted by the deep tones of Mr. Eugene Terrablanche's poetry in Afrikaans, which is almost like Barry White-esque levels of deep. <laughs> I've never heard a voice that, that intensely deep. <laughs> Louis and Dirk are being driven to Mr. Terran Blanche's home. Neither of them are driving at this point. They are packed in the back like teenage boyfriend and girlfriend being driven to the cinema. Louis asks Dirk, is there any topic I should avoid? And Dirk says, racism. (laughs) Yeah. Dirk sort of tries to say, oh, Mr. Terran Blanche isn't a racist. He's a Boer nationalist. It's different. But Louis's not really buying it. Louis says, the identity is great, but you can do that within the context of a multiracial South African. Africa you don't need to separate yourself off to keep this going and Dirk isn't ready for this home truth so moves on to Louis's shirt which we can get a better look at now so he says where did you get your shirt and Louis says oh my girlfriend got it for me it's got farmers on it it does have little farmers on it and some flowers she obviously got him that shirt for this episode but 
did he then just put that into his repertoire? Like, are we going to see the farmer shirt come up again now? I guarantee I would put money. I would put my house on. We will see a farmer shirt again. There is no way that's making one appearance and then we're never seeing it again. Well, maybe not though, because Louis asks Dirk, does he like it? And Dirk says he's not mad about it. He's not mad on the show, but he clearly loves Louis. The fun and games are now over. It's time for the big showdown with Eugene. But first, lots of waiting. Lots of waiting. We see Louis sitting in this very 70s looking living room, which looks incredibly ridiculous with his outfit. Everyone is deadly silent. It's very tense. There is a room full of guys there and Mr. Terrible Lunch comes over. Louis says, it's great that you've given me the time. Thank you so much. And he says, I hope you do appreciate it, my friend, in a lot lower tone than that. He's so awkward and scary from the beginning. I just wanted to die immediately. Eventually, Louis gets him to talk to him about something else other than how grateful he should be. And we get another map out. He cracks out the map. Old trusty, old reliable. This will wear him down. Eugene just goes for it, doesn't he? And he says, these are the areas that the Boers want to take back, take ownership of. And Louis says, oh, including Johannesburg. And he replies, oh no, you can have Johannesburg. So this is where the myth of the war hits reality. So he's like, I'm claiming and demanding those two republics and then he doesn't want Johannesburg which is right in the fucking centre of his new republic so already this is a mess to be drawn on a map he talks about how Johannesburg there's a majority of black people and then he wants that to be almost a state within a state the whole thing is utterly futile and stupid but Terran Blanche has clearly got ingratiated with the map so he snatches the pen out of Louis's hand and starts drawing on the names of his new republics in Afrikaans he's engaged with his colouring in but the next prop that Louis hopes will help break down the barriers is a flip chart so weird a whiteboard why is he doing this it's like a really bad office meeting he writes down the qualities of a Boer man on the whiteboard which I didn't catch them all but included being Christian having toughness and pride it's the worst Tinder bio ever. Accepting the elements, weather, patriotism, sense of history, and ideally should speak Afrikaans. Brackets, not essential. Louis' big reveal is, did you know that black people can have these qualities too? And clearly, Mr. Terran Blanche is not engaged with that. I think he sort of like begrudgingly might say, yeah, okay. But then Louis says, could a non-white person with these traits be a boor? And Terra Blanche says, never. He can never be a boor. It is not a matter of black and white, my friend. You really do not understand. Why? We are not Africans from Africa. We are from Europe. And Terra Blanche is off now. The flipboard has freaked him out. So he's shouting about this. Louis tries to interject, but Eugene won't let him. And then he says his people are in danger of being destroyed. It's all extremely tense. Maybe the tensest I've ever seen a conversation in front of a whiteboard. Possibly ever. (laughs) But Louis tries to bring it back to the homework and says, no, 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 let's go back to the list. Must be white is now added to the Tinder bio of a great bore. Louis sort of tries to ask Eugene to chill out. I think he says to him, can you lower your tone? And that really, really sets him off. He says, you don't tell me to lower my tone to talk more quietly. You change your tone. And he says, don't try to be cocky. Louis says, New South Africa is an exciting step forward for the country. And Taryn Blanche gets so angry about the use of the word exciting. The people who build the highways and the schools are not in the in the government anymore. It's that exciting. The conquering minority, the oppressors, are you not happy with what we've given you sort of nonsense that you get from these sort of movements? 
Terra Blanche thinks that there will be war between the black nations in South Africa. He essentially says, I think black people will go to war with each other and we'll protect ourselves, which is quite convenient, isn't it? Yeah. He gets really angry because Louis says, so if black nations go to war with each other, what will you do? Will you just grab your land? And he gets really angry about that use of language and says, we're not grabbing anything. It's our land sort of thing. And then he, again, the same as Peter did much earlier, he just goes, right, that's it. Turn off that camera. I'm done. Louis then says, wait, wait, let's shake hands. They shake hands and Miss Terra Blanche is squeezing it hard. This ridiculous macho posturing. So Louis leaves Mr. Terra Blanche to his white-only nation ideals, which he'll never, ever see. That's what he says. He thinks it's sad how out of touch he is. It kind of is sad. This is a man who's been poisoned by his own hate and is on the losing end of what is progression and can't seem to get his head around that. So a bit shaken up, I guess, Louis decides to go back to Eddie, who I think is probably his favourite old man. And Louis basically does the equivalent of saying, Dad, they were mean to me. So he's going to go to this boar ceremony with Eddie, but first they've got to do some manual labour. So they're in a field kind of doing some farming work. Eddie tries to explain Mr. Terra Blanche and he says he has lost a dream and it hurt him terribly, which is a really mature understanding of how that guy is who he is. But Eddie remains confident, enthusiastic that boars can be part of this new Africa and you kind of have to admire his commitment to this idea. However his metaphor for how it can work is quite eye-opening. He says oh it's like playing piano. There's black keys and there's white keys. You need to play all of the keys ebony and ivory but they're still separate and Louis says you play them all together and Eddie's like nope adamant they are separate. He says the burr is indispensable to Africa and you've just got to be enthusiastic. Enthusiasm is the main thing. Enthusiastically racist. So we go ahead to the commemoration, this ceremony. It's a commemoration of the Boers' victory over the Zulus. Everyone's dressed up for the occasion. Even Marty has got her camouflage on. This is the first time she's done that. And Eddie talks about why he loves camo so damn much. Because he was a big fan of the Spice Girls. Yeah, it's funny that these two movements were happening at the same time. Spice Mania and the Boer movement. Eddie says camouflage clothing has a dominating effect. He says there's evidence. I looked this up. I could find no evidence. (laughs) People just are a little bit more scared of him when he wears his camo. He actually makes some pretty horrible derogatory comments here, which I think are maybe pinned at Louis a little bit, because obviously Louis likes his patterned shirts and he often chooses pastel colours and stuff like that. And Eddie says something like, oh, if you're wearing a pink shirt and pink shoelaces, then no one's going to respect you. Yeah, it's unsurprising to me that Eddie's views are still very conservative when it comes to colour. He clearly wasn't at the Boar State Festival where we saw Pink Waistcoat Man. You can wear pink and be a boar too, Eddie. So then they go into this ceremony... Louis doesn't want to be late. He's worried they're going to be late. (laughs) But then we cut to this church-like ceremony and Louis is incredibly bored. So bored. He's really bored. The whole thing's in Afrikaans. He can't understand what anyone's saying. And it's very formal, traditional and not very exciting. When he comes out, he says, God, that was long. This is the interesting bit where we have to see Eddie in the midst of other boars. We meet a guy called Andre. He's explaining his views and he says, we don't want to mix with other people. And Eddie kind of stays quiet about this. He's there with Louis, but doesn't seem to want to get involved. Louis says Andre's view is a little bit Nazi-ish. 
I think he says don't take this the wrong way again as well. But Andre defends it. He keeps saying if you can't discriminate, you can't be civilised. And he seems to be really surprised that Louis doesn't agree. Louis says he's coming out with views that just wouldn't be acceptable in Britain. Is that still true? I don't know whether that is still true. Would you be surprised to see that on the telly? I mean, I think those views were probably had by people in Britain at the time of watching this documentary when it first aired. I think it's a little bit naivety on Louis's part. And so then Eddie and Louis kind of walk off into the distance, still discussing all these things. And he says, he knows Andre is radical, but you can't force guys like him. He says, integration will come naturally. Don't force it, which is not really the lesson we've learned from history in terms of how integration happens. We see Eddie and Louis walk off into the distance and then... There's this weird final screen that comes up, which reads, Terra Blanche, who had lived in relative obscurity since the decline of his organisation, was murdered on his farm on the 3rd of April 2010. So obviously that wouldn't have been included in the original airing of this episode because it was 10 years before that happened. Interesting that they decided to put that in. Yeah, a really interesting choice. I'm kind of trying to work my head around why they felt that that context was important to give, but the episode doesn't give much context elsewhere. They stole your thunder there because you would have revealed that to me. Well, I can reveal a bit more. In 2001, he was sentenced to six years in prison of which he served three years for assaulting a man called John and Zima, a petrol station worker and the attempted murder of another man, a security guard in 1996. So clearly this must have been hanging over his head all the while while he was in this episode with Louis, which is 2000. So a year later, he is in prison. There was the worry drummed up by certain elements of like the right-wing society that it was the return of violence against white farmers. Judging from the court case, this is not true. What actually happened was it was a pay dispute between Terran Blanche and people who worked on his farm. The people who were finally put away for his murder were found guilty were teenagers at the time that this happened. They were 15 and 16. They weren't even legal adults. It's also worth probably mentioning that there was a whole theory that was some sort of dispute of a potentially homosexual relationship between both parties which would have been an absolutely shocking thing for a man who pushed segregation and apartheid all his life to have gay relationships with black men. So it's a big mess, essentially, like the guy's life. The death is a very confusing affair. And it's interesting that they included that slide before the very end of the episode, which shows more footage of Louis shaking hands with Tara Blanche. And he's just saying some really strange stuff. Nonsense. Just utter nonsense. It highlights like the sort of place he was at. It didn't make sense anymore. It was obvious that he was past his best already. And this is 10 years before he died. Banging tunes though. Got to give him that. Okay, Alex, tell me, was this good Louis or bad Louis? I think this was good Louis, but I think it was bad Weird Weekends. Ooh, I like that. I think he learned from past episodes that have dealt with similar themes and he did a better job of presenting a better critique of racism. But I think that it meant that it took away the DIY, the get involved element. So although, as we pointed out, he did try to be a Boer army recruit and he shot some guns and lugged some bags of corn around. He wasn't trying to be an apartheid Boer because why would he want to be that? It's not really a subculture in the same way that a lot of the subcultures are in the other episodes. Yeah, agreed. I think this is good, Louis, because I think this is such a kind of important episode for maybe the development of Louis as a documentary maker. I think you're right. This is not really a weird weekend. 
It's almost like he does the bit where he dresses up as a boar and joins in all the military stuff, but then sits with that other guy and has the conversation where their aim is to rebuild the white nation and kill black people and very quickly withdraws from that and goes back to being an outsider looking in. Having said that, there is a lot of scenes where he challenges people of authority about their views, which is really good to see. He doesn't let anyone get away with saying whatever they want. I think there could have been a lot more context at certain scenes. I would have liked to have known how dangerous someone like Mr. Terra Blanche actually really was. I would have liked to have known a bit more about the AWB. People have died at the hands of this political party. So that all could have been done better. But the chat with Dirk about crowd size and then <laughs> platforming a Nazi was so relevant. It was really incredible to see that. Yeah, and I- I know we keep saying this but it is mad how relevant all of these episodes still are and they seem to just like fall into place with what's going on currently in topical events great shirt as well that's a legacy shirt that's one of the best ones we've seen thanks for listening next time we'll be discussing weird weekend series three episode four bodybuilding if you didn't know tara dunn has created original artwork for each episode of all the way through so far you can see them on our instagram at all pod Angels on your bodies.